Last Sunday morning, I began the sermon by asking us to think about the things that we put our trust in. This week, I want to return to that theme by asking something similar. Assuming that some of those things that we put our trust in are people, be they friends or family, leaders or professionals, how do we go about deciding if we can really trust someone? What things would we need to see or know before we opened up to them or vulnerably put ourselves in their hands? Well, I've been thinking quite a lot this week about this And I think most of the answers that you will come up with fit into one of three categories. First and foremost, we trust people of good character. People whose values fall in line with our own. We trust people who are honest and kind, patient and hardworking. We trust people who are just and fair and have compassion on others. We trust people who are like us. I, for one, would trust someone who I knew to be a Christian much quicker than someone I knew to be cynical about my faith. Character and values are important, probably the most important, when we are deciding if we're going to trust someone. Second comes the factor of experience. We trust people who have proved themselves to be worthy of that trust. Maybe they've helped us out before. In terms of family and friends, maybe they've been in our lives a long time and shown again and again how dedicated they are to our well-being. We trust people that we have good experience of. And finally, we trust people who have made some form of promise to us. If someone personally and solemnly commits to doing something, we trust that more than if it's just slapdash or a spur-of-the-moment agreement. I trust my wife because she made vows to me on my wedding day. And of course, we all quite often say to people, I promise I will do such and such. I promise I will have that done before the deadline." A promise is important. And when we pledge ourselves to something, it shows how serious we are. And because of that, people are more likely to trust us. So character, experience and promise. I think they are the three factors that we consider when we're deciding if we're going to trust someone. And I hope that we all have people in our lives who meet these criteria And of course, we all know, don't we, that if we want people in our lives who we can trust, we also must be trustworthy like this in return. Now, the reason I've begun in this way is because the main thing I want us to take away from this sermon this morning is that above everything else, we can trust God. We can stake everything in our lives on him, our whole future on him. Why? Because his character is beautiful. Because his people have experienced his goodness for centuries. And when God makes a promise, he never, ever breaks it. And all of this will be seen as we look at this wonderful prophecy in Micah. 
As our passage began, we very quickly discovered that God's people were in a situation where they would really need to trust the Lord. This is verse 1. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. The year is 701 BC and Israel are in big trouble. Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, has invaded Judah. He has smashed all the fortified towns in the country and has now decided to lay siege to the capital, Jerusalem. The kingdom is in mourning. Those within the city walls are terrified. And Hezekiah, the Judean king, hasn't got a clue what to do. And in this terrible situation, God sends the prophet Micah to go and give Hezekiah a message. God wants the king and the people to turn back and put their trust in him. And if they do, he will ensure that everything turns out all right in the end. Now, if you go home and read through the book of Micah, which I encourage you to do, it's only very short, you'll be struck by two things. It's a book full of hope, but hope rooted first in honesty. The reason that God can promise to deal with the Assyrian threat is because he was the one who allowed them to invade in the first place. God allowed this exile because he'd already tried everything else to turn his people around. This was the final act of parental discipline available to him. The reason God's people are in so much trouble is because they've wandered away from God and they've started worshipping idols instead. And as they have done this, their morals have sunk into the mud. They're treating people appallingly. Just listen to some of these damning excerpts from the book, Micah 2. Woe to those who plan iniquity and plot evil on their beds. As morning light, they carry it out because it's their power to do it. They cover fields and seize them and houses and take them. They defraud people of their homes and rob them of their inheritance. Micah 3. Listen, you leaders of Jacob. Should you not embrace justice, you who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people? Hear this, you leaders who despise justice, who build Zion with bloodshed. Her leaders judge for a bribe and her priests teach for a price and her prophets tell fortunes for money. Micah 7. The faithful have been swept from the land. No one upright remains. Everyone lies in wait to shed blood. They hunt each other with nets. Both hands are skilled in doing evil. The ruler demands gifts. The judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. Can you see? The nation's gone completely off the rails. And it's been led from the top. Wicked leaders have set an example and everyone else has followed. And now the whole of society is involved in injustice and oppression of the vulnerable. And in that situation, God was left with no choice. He had to do something. He tried talking. He tried sending the prophets with warnings. But now he had to act. He had to protect the poor and the weak from further exploitation. 
And he had to let the nation experience the consequences of their actions. Otherwise they would never change. So with a broken heart, God allows his people to be attacked by the Assyrians. And he does so longing that in their suffering, they might turn around and trust him once more. That is the ruthless honesty of the situation. The great hope of Micah comes in the promise that if the people do this, they will discover that God has a long-term plan to redeem them. Incredibly, after the exile, God is going to send someone very special. He is going to send a new ruler who will not just transform Israel, but the whole world. And God is so certain of this long-term plan, he already knows where this new king is going to come from. He'll be born in Bethlehem. As Micah preaches this message to King Hezekiah and the people of Judah 700 years before the birth of Jesus, they have to decide whether they're going to trust it or not. If they did, they would have all the hope they needed to see them through this dire situation. And all of us here today also have to decide, are we going to trust God or not? And the promise is the same. If we do, this ruler that God has guaranteed will come into the world once more will bring us all the hope we need. Very briefly now, I'm going to lead us verse by verse through this prophecy. And with each verse, we're going to find some very good news. We're going to learn five things about God's character that will hopefully lead us to trust him with our lives. The first thing we learn about God from this wonderful prophecy is that God always keeps his promises. Verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Here we see the great turnaround that God is promising. After the exile, God's people have a new ruler sent to them who will lead them into much better times. But what in here tells us that God keeps his promises? Well, it's the name of the place that this ruler will come from. This new king will come from Bethlehem. Now, why is Bethlehem significant to God's people? It's because every Jew knows that their greatest hero also came from there. King David was born and brought up in Bethlehem. It was the hometown of his father, Jesse. So when God promises to send a new ruler from Bethlehem, he is reminding all the people of the great promise that he made to David in days of old. Do you remember it? We looked at it a few weeks ago. In 2 Samuel 7, God promised to build David a great household. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever, he said. God literally promised David that one of his descendants would reign over God's people forevermore. And in the days of the Assyrian invasion, that promise looked likely to be broken. 
But no, here is God reaffirming he is absolutely committed to it. The new ruler that will come from Bethlehem will be the descendant of David who will reign on his throne forevermore. This mention of Bethlehem was a reminder to the original hearers that God remained in control. He remained sovereign over the world situation. Yes, that world seemed very dark now. The Assyrian invasion would have felt incredibly harsh to the average Judean. But God knew what he was doing. He was active behind the scenes, making his plans and purposes come to be. And we see the same in the fulfilment of this promise, don't we? As Christians, we know that the promised ruler from Bethlehem was Jesus. But he was very nearly not born there at all, was he? Mary and Joseph lived in Nazareth. They weren't from Bethlehem at all. The only reason that Jesus was born in Bethlehem was because the Roman governor of the time called for a census. No one could have possibly expected that turn of events. But 700 years before, God knew it would happen all the time. When we hear the word Bethlehem this Christmas season, I want us to remember this. It's a sign that God always keeps his promises. And he can guarantee to do that because he is sovereign over all things. He is behind the scenes, constantly at work, making his promises come true. And because of that, we can really trust him. The second thing we learn about God from Micah's prophecy is that he has this unstinting desire to humble the proud and raise the humble. Again, it comes from that second verse. But you, Bethlehem, though you are small, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler. As we heard with the children and the story of David being anointed by Samuel, God doesn't always choose the biggest and the strongest and the most beautiful. He chooses the one with the heart for him. David was the smallest and least attractive of his brothers, but the Lord knew that he trusted him. And so God chose him to be king. In the Micah prophecy, God says the same thing about Bethlehem itself. Bethlehem was a very small place, but from that little town would come the most important person in history. This was a smack in the eye for the haughty leadership in Jerusalem who had done so much to lead the country astray. God's new ruler would not come from the powerful or the educated, the religious or the wealthy. God's new ruler wouldn't come from the city elite at all, but from among the poor and the vulnerable, those who still had a heart for God. It's quite telling in this verse that God says, out of you, Bethlehem, will come for me, one who will be ruler. Will come for me. This ruler will not serve himself like the Jerusalem leaders were at the time, but would set out only to serve the Lord. He wouldn't be puffed up with pride and ego, but would obey and honour God. And in God's eyes, that is always the path to greatness. God humbles the proud and raises the humble. God is not on an ego trip. He is humble and devoted at heart. 
And that is another very good reason why we can trust him. The third thing we learn from this prophecy is that God is both just and merciful. This is verse 3. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labour bears a son. And the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. Now this verse comes as a bit of a jolt in the prophecy. Everything around it is so encouraging and beautiful. But this verse brings us back to reality for a moment. Just because God is promising to send a new ruler does not mean that Israel are going to escape this current situation with Assyria scot-free. They will know trouble. They will know abandonment. Remember what we said at the beginning. This situation happened because of their sin. They fully deserved this experience of the consequences. And we can never get around this. The God that we worship is completely just. He will always deal with wrongdoing. He just cannot let it go unnoticed because if he does, vulnerable people suffer and the world is damaged over and over again. Sin has a consequence and the Bible tells us ultimately it is death because it separates us from the holy God who is the giver of life. But, and it's a wonderful but, as well as being completely just, God is always deeply merciful. He is always looking for a way to make forgiveness possible. This new ruler to be born in Bethlehem would come into the world to forgive God's people. And incredibly, as he does this, he will make the way for God's people to be reunited and from people for all the nations of the earth to come in and join them. God will deal with sin justly, but he's not out for revenge. His greatest desire is to restore and to reconcile. He is just, so he will always do what is right. He is merciful, so he always has our best interests at heart. And for that reason, we can truly trust him. The next verse of our reading begins to explain how this new ruler will bring about God's mercy into the world. He's going to do it by acting as a good shepherd. This is the first half of verse 4. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Now to the original Jewish hearers of this prophecy, this is another link to David. He was famous for growing up as a shepherd boy. He was the one who wrote Psalm 23, the Lord's my shepherd. He was writing from experience. And David knew that a good shepherd stands firm in the face of peril and pressure to defend the flock. David knew that a good shepherd fights off the enemies, be they bears or lions or wolves. A shepherd works hard to ensure that his flock is well fed and cared for. Now, when Jesus, the babe of Bethlehem, grew up and began his teaching ministry, it is no coincidence that he turned to this same imagery to describe himself. In John 10, you get this long block of teaching where he says, I am the good shepherd. 
And we know, don't we, that Jesus went on to stand firm in the face of peril and temptation. He fought off our greatest enemies, death and hell and sin. And he's provided us with all the sustenance and hope we need. And how did he do that? Well, he told us himself. I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. A shepherd tends to the flock at great personal risk to himself. Jesus gave up his life to bring the salvation that we need and the promise of safe pasture forevermore. This verse in Micah gives us a helpful insight into how he would manage such a feat. He would do it in the strength of the Lord. The ruler born in Bethlehem achieved all that he did because he was filled with with God's spirit. And when you come to know Jesus as your good shepherd, it really does make you feel more secure. You realize that our security isn't found in wealth or status, but in quiet trust of our shepherd. Micah foresaw that the ruler born in Bethlehem would be a shepherd king. And just like the sheep in the flocks of Isla, we can trust the one who shepherds us. That then leads us to the final aspect of God's character found in this prophecy. His great desire is to make peace across the world. The reading finished like this. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and they will live securely For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth and he will be our peace. This new ruler who's coming into Bethlehem is going to make the way for all people to live securely. And he's going to do this because God's rule, his goodness is going to flood the world right to the farthest corners. And when this happens, peace will come between all people. And when we talk about peace here, we're not just talking about the absence of war. The Hebrew word for peace, shalom, is much broader than that. It means wholeness and safety and fulfillment and rest. What a beautiful thought. This is the great vision that God is working on. This is what the world will look like when his purposes are finally fulfilled. And this is what will be when Jesus, the great ruler born in Bethlehem, returns to the world a second time and puts all things right. But now that we know what God is working towards, now we know his great intention for peace, we are encouraged more and more to put our trust in him. We've discovered so much, it's time to stop and bring everything to conclusion. Thousands of years ago, the prophet Micah spoke these words to provide hope for God's people. They were going through a really difficult time because of their sin. Micah wanted them to come back and put their trust in God, to take hold of his great vision for peace. He wanted their experience of suffering to become like a great arrow in the sky, pointing to their need for God in their lives. Micah strove to encourage them to trust God. 
He told them about his wonderful character. He was faithful and humble and just and merciful and a loving shepherd. Micah has reminded them of all the promises that God has kept and the new one that he is making now. Wonderfully, when King Hezekiah heard Micah's prophecy, he did trust it. He turned and he repented. You can read it in 2 Kings 18 and 19 when you get home. And when he repented, God miraculously spared Jerusalem from the Assyrians. I wonder how we will respond today. We know that Jesus fulfills every word of this prophecy. He was born in Bethlehem and he became our good shepherd. We know that he's made the way for forgiveness and is coming back to bring worldwide peace. Will we repent of our sin and put our trust in him this Christmas? We now have every reason to do so.